Welcome to this podcast of But Did You Die? Podcast by Ops Medical Group with your host, Craig, Mandy, Wendy, and me, John. We are an acute care and emergency medicine clinicians. Our goal with this podcast is to provide education and entertainment by bringing you insights into our experiences to help you better understand critical aspects of medicine. We hope that our stories provide you both uh, an insight into the technical and human side of medicine. Our ultimate goal is to help you develop the technical, mental, and emotional tools to handle emergent events. All right, guys. Let's talk about bystander CPR. All right. I was reading an article last week that said over 350,000 Americans die from sudden cardiac arrest annually. And not a week goes by that I don't have a cardiac arrest where a patient is brought in and his or her family follows in tow and they tell me, well, I didn't start CPR. I didn't know what to do. So this is a big problem if I'm seeing it once a week and I'm sure y'all are seeing it too. Oh yeah, Um, definitely. And I feel like we need to address this because as we've talked about, this is not the time to do nothing. We've got to get uh, people doing chest compressions. So I just wanted us to talk about both our experience uh, doing CPR and recommendations that we would have for the general public who may encounter someone in cardiac arrest or have a loved one that goes into cardiac arrest. Um, There's new data out that has been um, proposed that chest compressions are really all that's needed. Don't focus on the airway. I would say be careful with that. I mean, that's if that's all you're going to do, okay, fine. Um, but if it's a kid, make sure you're doing the breathing because most kids have respiratory cardiopulmonary arrest. Um, and so that's a big deal. If it's a water accident, you're going to want to you know, make sure you're giving the breath. But if you're not comfortable with that and all you're comfortable doing is chest compressions, do chest compressions. Uh, and, and you really don't need a whole lot of training. Um, you know, put your hands in the center of the chest and press down as hard as you freaking can. And you want to do it fast, 100 to 120 beats a minute, which everyone classically says is the song Stayin' Alive, which I've never actually sung in my head while I'm doing Yeah, that's what I was going to say. That's what I've heard. Yeah, yeah. For those from that area, if you, era, if you know that yeah. song, yeah, sing it in your head and just go with the beat. Gets you to about 100, 120 yeah. per minute, yeah. Yeah. I've also heard that if you're not breaking ribs, you're not doing deep enough chest compressions. True. And this goes back to what you were saying a minute ago, how it's uncomfortable. Yeah. And I think we should also talk about that because most people don't realize how violent CPR is. Yeah. Yeah, no, I I agree that it is not a comfortable scenario. Uh, And I mean that from every perspective, from, you know, you being either a parent, uh, um, a professional clinician that has done it thousands, you know, hundreds of times, whatever, it doesn't matter. Uh, it's not one of those things that, you know, once again, we don't jump up and go like, oh, I get to do CPR, you know? Oh, great, it's code blue. Yeah. You know, it's not one of those things. It's like, you know, yeah, it sucks. Yeah. yeah. I gotta go do this thing, and this is gonna take a little while. And I think for a person who, you know, going back to something that Wendy said is, you know, if you're a person and you're thinking, man, you know, I can save this person's life uh, just by doing CPR uh, because I have the clinical expertise. And even if you don't and you do it, you can still save this person's life, uh, which I think is probably the most important part. 
Yeah, I mean, it's technic- It's the worst outcome we could have, if you think about it medically. I mean, there is, it's death. So if you have somebody who has gone down in front of you, there is no worse clinical outcome for us. And so I think even it's going to be uncomfortable. People are hesitant because they don't want to hurt people. Um, and it makes you uncomfortable to touch strangers, especially now, because now we're all a little bit leery with the pandemic yeah. and germs and what's going Definitely. on with this person. So for sure, if you're not comfortable doing the respiratory part, um, you can effectively wash your hands later of the situation. Um, but I think when you actually put your hands on somebody's chest to pump their chest, it takes a lot more effort than you realize. It's violent. It You have to compress or concave their chest, you know, one to two inches to actually get the heart to be included in that. And that takes a lot of strength. And at 100 to 120 beats a minute, that's violent and it's forceful. And just that one aspect, though, can change the outcome when they arrive to the ER. It's amazing the outcome and the difference that we can have. Because a person who's received 30 minutes of CPR in the field versus 30 minutes of nothing, clinically, the person with the CPR has the better chance. And there's some studies that show that 30 minutes of no oxygen to the brain is, it's futile to do any further work. Mm -hmm. So we can try, but we're really not going to be successful. Um, even in the cases, there was some study that I read that even in the best of cases, 5 to 10% of people in cardiopulmonary arrest, not only are we able to resuscitate, uh, re- leave the hospital with some sort of meaningful recovery, um, the other 90 to 95% either die or they live on a ventilator, which you know, is uh, drastically with, different. With the exception of kids, though. like kids are different that's yeah. true. Different. we are talking about adults here yeah so, so and, and you know you, you mentioned it in terms of like doing the the chest compressions the violence of it all but it's also important that people let the chest recoil mm-hmm. so so part of the idea of cpr is that you are actively pumping the blood you are you are the heart so the heart is no longer uh, squeezing to provide blood to the brain or the kidneys or the lungs. So you are the heart. So you're pushing the heart down. But equally as important is pushing the heart down to, ex- you know, send the blood out to the brain and the lungs and the kidneys is letting the heart fill back up. So you gotta let you gotta let the heart fill back up. And by doing that, you you lay off the chest. Now you don't take your hands completely off the chest, but let the chest recoil out and then compress again and out. But you, you're right. You do get tired. I mean. That's why even in the, you know, in the ER, we rotate. We go through three, sometimes four at a time because it's, it's tiring. Now, if you're the only person there, do the best that you can. And, you know, you and I just want to bring up another point. I think, um, especially for the bystander CPR aspect, it's important when you see the situation or recognize it, um, call for help. Even if you just holler out for somebody else. Because yeah. I think sometimes a lot of people forget that aspect and that's a big time delay for getting EMS to the scene. Yeah, and, and you know the emotional aspect of this, if this is a loved one or a friend, it is hard to detach yourself and think logically about, okay, wait a minute, this person is no longer responding. I've you know, shaken them, yelled at them, they're no longer responding. 
I need to call 911 or I need to yell for one of my friends to call 911. But that's important and it's really hard when it's someone that you care about yes. to, to be able to step back and say, well, wait, 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 we got to get 911 on the horn before we can go any further. And now I need to start doing chest compressions um, because that's going to be their best chance of survival, like Wendy, like you said. Um, yeah. So because and if I could just add a story, and this is going back to kids and kind of calling 911. So one day we had this um, kid come in by EMS. He had choked on something. Um, and he had already been intubated, but the problem was, um, I don't remember how old he was. I want to say he was probably still an infant, like less than a year old, but the problem was it was like mom and 12 other family members in the home. Everybody panicked. Everybody panicked. Everybody freaked out. Nobody like did anything. Somebody finally called 911 and it had already been several minutes I want to say 15-20 minutes before somebody got there and I think the first person at the scene was an officer and so he was trying to you know give first aid to this child but it was and I remember him saying like everybody was just panicking and I understand and, and I get it like this is your child and that's kind of the first thing you're going to do but I think especially around the holidays, just things just happen. I think it's important for people to just kind of remember, try to be calm. And, and I know it's hard in those situations. And, and we do it because we, that this is what we do every day. But I think in those kind of situations, the kid ended up doing fine. But, you know, everybody sat there and panicked for yeah. so long before. Well, I think even us, like as medical professionals, I know that like my first code ever, way back when, in the early 2000s, when I was a little baby nurse, you know, my hands are shaking, I'm sweating, I feel nauseated. Yeah. What's going on? Oh, my God, this is awful. Like, this is the worst thing that could be happening to me and this person at this point in time. And you're just so, you're on the spot, and it's you, and you have to actually apply your training. And... I had an older nurse actually look at me and go, stop shaking. There is literally nothing else you can do but improve the situation. And I think that's a key point to take away from it. Like, okay, even if you panic a little bit at first, you have to improve the situation as best you can. And yeah. that's by doing something, even if it's to call 911. So. That's an action. Yeah, that's doing yeah, something, one, one moving my, in the right direction. One of my mentors always used to say, uh, you can't kill a dead person. And that's essentially, they, they died. And the best case scenario is you get them back. You, you can't make it worse. Um, and so you do chest compressions and do the every, everything you can. And if you're in a group, uh, you assign roles uh, or volunteer, hey, I'm going to call 911. Um, and then you say, I'm, uh, I'm going to call 911. Uh, this person... Uh, is going to you know, track down family or uh, a medication list, which is something that's helpful for us in the ER. Um, but you're right, if, if a family of 12 just sits there and all panics, nothing gets done, well, minutes go by without oxygen to the brain. That's, that's bad. Um, and so that's why you want to get on that chest compressions uh, right away as, as fast as you can. And, and it, I'm all about uh, people getting certified and go through the American Heart Association or the YMCA and various other organizations that offer CPR classes, but you don't have to have a class to do chest compressions. And that's one of the things that too many patients say, well, I was waiting for my neighbor to come uh, because I know he or she is certified in CPR and, and I'm not. Well, that's okay. I mean, 
yes, get certified. But in the interim, do chest compressions. Like, you can, yeah, you know. Yeah, nobody's going to get mad at you. No. You're no. not going to get in trouble. No. Nobody's going to, I mean. You're not going to get a speeding ticket for doing chest compressions. Yeah, there's no. not a secret yeah. police for chest yeah. compressions. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and there's really not a secret to it other than you want to do it fast. And you want to push down, you know, two two inches or so, uh, maybe even more, yeah. um, depending on the patient's size. Uh, and then you want to let the chest recoil all the way, and then do it again. And you, you're going to get tired. It's going to be difficult. Involve your, you know, shoulders. And, you know, make sure that you're staying after it because it is a, it, you're performing the duties of the heart at this point. Yeah. Um, and the brain goes without blood for too long. I mean, it, we're. we're I know that most of the studies show that 25, 30 minutes, and it's you know, futile to continue to do CPR um, if you haven't gotten anything. Not that we haven't seen people get return of spontaneous circulation, and I know that there's certainly miraculous cases, so we're talking in you know, broad statistical terms. Um, but when we have patients who come into the ER and they haven't gotten any CPR for 30 minutes but they, you know, wait, while they were waiting on an EMS to get there, that's a really bad outcome. 99 plus percent of the time it is and then when you add in kind of their other comorbid factors yeah it makes it a little it kind of just compounds the situation yeah. a little bit more and then you have to consider what are we saving is it just going to be a shell of a person are they going to have any actual quality of life at that point i mean because that is something that unfortunately we occasionally have to take into account and make that decision yeah it's really hard to um, go off on a little bit of a tangent here but it's really hard for us as emergency physicians to convey this the sense of futility with CPR to a family member or loved one because first of all Hollywood has screwed us they've made it seem like everyone who gets CPR walks out of the is hospital gonna walk later out of the day. hospital <laughs> and like or they probably, sit up immediately and talk. Yeah, yeah. Yes, and are like, thank you so much. Yes, yeah. Yes. Um, they actually did a study. I don't remember exactly what it, when it was. It was early 2000s, but they looked at the movies and Hollywood stuff in the 90s. And 85 to 90% of the cardiac arrests in the Hollywood TV movie scenarios, they all left the hospital neurologically intact. They took the same time period, which was, I don't know, seven or eight year time period in the mm -hmm. late 90s. 6% left the hospital with any kind of neurological Comparing attack. it to Comparing like it actual to yes, patients. Yes, and actual patients, 6%. Hollywood patients, 85 to 90%. And so the, the perception is unrealistic. Yeah. And, you know, it's difficult for us to convey that to families uh, when they have these expectations, which are completely unfounded. But it's also frustrating, too, because I know that our colleagues, say surgeons or cardiologists, um, they can choose not to take someone to the OR because they think it's not it's futile. They can choose not to take someone to the cath lab because they think this is, this is futile. We don't have that option unless the family says, look, I don't want anything to be done. Now, I think you may can involve some other physicians and, and decide to do it, but... It, it, it's we're not held to the same standard which for better or worse it is what it is um, but it is something that I find very difficult after we've worked on patients for 45 minutes 60 minutes 90 minutes depending on what the scenario is um, to, to tell the family we've done everything there is there are no more medications 
there are no more tricks. Uh, there are no more maneuvers. There's no more procedures. We did everything that we could, and this person died. Um, and that sucks, uh, and it really does. Um, but it's also difficult because I feel like the expectation is, well, they got CPR. Why didn't they survive? Well, I don't know. Or they got I, CPR. I don't know why. why are they not back to what they were before? Yeah. I think probably oh, yeah. is the hardest one that I've encountered, like doing hospital medicine. Is you, we did CPR. Uh, yeah. yeah, you for sure see they, that. They definitely more than see we that. Do. So yeah, like in the they're ICU, in the sure ICU. Why are they not improving? Yeah. And I think that's a hard conversation to have with family and trying to get family to understand that their pre-medical conditions compounded the situation. Um, how much CPR they did or didn't get just kind of makes it even worse. And all of the repercussions of the CPR that was done, plus all their conditions, just compounds the situation even more. So I read a study five or six years ago, and I want you to talk to your talk about this to your with your personal experience. But the study showed that people have a much that they are much more uh, guilt ridden when they quote pull the plug than if they tell the resuscitation team in the ER to to you know stop doing what they do. They have less guilt when they say, "Okay, y'all have done everything you can do. Stop doing CPR. We'll, we'll call the code." than they do if we get return of spontaneous circulation. They're in the ICU for several days. It's m- still meaningless, and they eventually decide to, quote, pull the plug, that there's way more guilt that they have associated with that than if they had just made Let it, it go s- at the beginning. Yeah. Have, yeah. have you seen that in your practice? I will say that I have not, I have not personally talked to some of these family members, but I will say from uh, speaking with the ICU nurses, they say that um, a lot of the families have a hard time just letting go because they think they're still going to have that one last minute miracle. And don't get me wrong, some things can happen. I'm not discounting that. But the problem that we run into is there's been so much um, neurological damage from like anoxia, not getting enough oxygen, and then all the damage that's done to the cardiopulmonary system from the CPR itself, um, that there is no meaningful survival. Um, And a lot of these families will let them hang on, or they kind of put a time frame. I have come to see that they were like, well, we'll try for another day. And if they are the same or worse, then we'll just let them go peacefully. And then another day turns into, well, let's wait till tomorrow. And then it turns, you know what I mean? It just, Mm -hmm. they just kind of keep prolonging this time frame. And I mean, there's nothing going on there. They've already done brain studies on these patients and they're brain dead. And the family is still holding out hope because they're like, well, they came back from CPR. And I feel bad for them. I really do. Um, But it's so much worse for the patient that's just kind of laying there in this, what I feel is like limbo. You're not really dead, but you're not really alive either. Craig, did you ever see that when you were working in the ICU? All the time. Which yeah. you, I mean, does that seem, the study seems reasonable. I just want to know, like, what your yeah. experience has been, too. So, I mean, our biggest thing was you would have a lot of anoxic injuries uh, with, with a lot of those scenarios. And I would probably say, uh, you know, you could probably toss a coin up and you say, okay, you have an ICU they have a patient that, you know, underwent this kind of surgery or they either need this surgery, but they're not eligible for the surgery because they're too sick. And 
they arrest him. And you do everything. You bring him back. You get you get a heart rate back is really what you get. Yeah. Uh, you don't get brain function back. Turn off all the narcotics, turn off all the sedation, turn off all the paralytics. Not moving, not anything's happening. Every once in a while they arrest again and they arrest again and they arrest again. And so you, you start having the conversations with the families over and over and over. And yeah, there's there's families that definitely understand that, you know what, uh, I get it, you guys are working your ass off, but it's my dad and I want you to keep, keep going. And then um, you have the other scenario where I think you have people that are just um, able to see that it is not going to come out well, and they, they decide to let go. Um, I don't remember like a lot of guilt in my opinion coming from or being conveyed to me from some of those family members uh, that I can that I can honestly recall as a matter of fact I think if anything a lot of the families that were willing to let go and say their last goodbye versus here you are at 2 o'clock in the morning you're doing CPR you can't get the guy back I think those families had a harder time with the reality than the people that said, hey, you know what, we're going to go ahead and turn everything off, extubate them, and pull the plug, everything, and we're going to sit at the bedside and just kind of hang out with them and let it be. They had already kind of accepted yeah. the yeah, inevitability. I think, yeah. I think having, and that's a great word, having acceptance of, you know what, my family member is terminally ill and it's not going to get any better, and letting them go peacefully is just, I think, for a lot of folks, a lot easier on them. I think the oh. other thing that helps us too, sorry, Mandy. No, you go ahead. Off there, <laughs> um, is the witness, like actual, the witnessing of our attempt to resuscitate people. After we've talked and we've done the, hey, this is the third time. Hey, we're doing this again. Hey, bringing them to the bedside. I know that's becoming a much more popular trend. And I think with good reason because once people come and it's not a pretty picture Hollywood paints it as a pretty picture it's not it's chaotic it is violent and we are inflicting a certain amount of trauma on this person to keep them alive oh, yeah it's very barbaric people it, don't understand yeah. how brutal it is and so when they actually get there and they can see it with their own eyes and we do a round of CPR for them and we try everything and we're doing it and they see it's easier for them to be like okay no this is not okay because I know I wouldn't want that for myself I mean if there's no meaningful recovery for me do not put me through that it's on tape you guys but you got it you got it yeah talk a little bit more about that though because I do think that including the family in observing our efforts is essential that having been said one of my mentors who whose opinion I, I value highly was not opposed to that, but he always cautioned me to advise family and friends exactly, Mandy, what you just said. It is barbaric. We are going to be sticking this person with needles. We're going to be putting tubes in their airway. We are going, they're going to be hooked up to a machine. They're going to be, we're going to be crushing their chest, literally crushing their chest. And so that they know it's going to, it's going to be messy. It's going to look messy. Mm -hmm. And there is a method to the madness, and so I think there's value in bringing the family to the 
to the bedside to see what we're doing. I just I thought we should talk about that um, so that anybody out there listening can understand, first of all, what we're trying to achieve. And then when we don't achieve it, why we make the decisions that we make. Because I think it is, it is really challenging. Not only are you emotionally distracted and distraught and unable to process any real rational thought if this is your loved one, but you're also now being told by clinicians, hey, look, here's what we're doing. It's a bunch of medical language that doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Um, and we're trying to figure out, well, wait a minute, this doctor's saying there's nothing else they can do, but what is going on? And then you bring them to the bedside and you show them, here's what we're doing. And it does, I think you're right, it gives them a chance to say goodbye. I think that's another thing that COVID has really just effed everything up. Oh, yeah, yeah. just robbed it everybody sucks. of that closure. It really has yeah, robbed, robbed people. everybody of I think of that, that is just, that, that really does suck. And I, I understand that hospitals have to, you know, take the stance that they do to try to prevent the spread. But, you know, there is something to be said for being able to say bye to a loved one. And not being able to do that with COVID is oh, yeah. really it's terrible. just terrible. My hat's off to, like, the ICU nurses and the RTs because I've had some of them tell me um, sometimes... At our facility, they have an iPad available, but some family members don't all have an iPhone or, you know, whatever. And so these nurses have personally taken out their phone and put it on speaker and put it at the bedside so that family can express their goodbyes to their loved one before, you know, the patient actually dies. Yeah. I mean, and it's, that's sad because most I mean, thank God for technology. Yeah, most people have... Before COVID, I mean, you know, they would allow everybody, you know, at the bedside and however family members want to come in and say goodbye. But now, I mean, now we can't do that. So my hat's off to the nurses and the the, um, IC nurses and the RT that actually are able in that position to do that. I had a a pediatric emergency medicine attending that I worked with during training who was, he was awesome. And he included parents in every resuscitation. And I will say... I've, I vividly remember every pediatric resuscitation I've ever had to do. Thankfully, it, it's not many, but those are the, for me, the hardest. And I, maybe it's because that's my kid's age, you know, like I've got kids that are about that age, so I see a kid anywhere near them, and it, just, it, it really messes with my head. But he included the parents every time. Um, and I, I finally, towards the end of my training, when I had worked with him a while and got to know him, I was like, hey, you know, and we don't do this a whole lot on the adult side. He said there's study after study after study that show benefit in the pediatric community that parents have a closure that they didn't have um, without seeing that. And so he very much believed in including the parents. But, man, some gut-wrenching experiences to see those parents having to say goodbye to their child. Um, it's one thing when it's your your know, great-grandfather who's lived an awesome yeah, life. Yeah, because it's kind of expected, and, yeah, and you're like, you're well, like, this sucks, is kind of the way life goes. Life. She yeah. lived a full life, as opposed to it's a three-year-old who, you know... Accidents happen. And, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah definitely. Uh, but it did, it, and that was the thing that struck me, is that it helped parents with closure. And um, I don't really know anybody, at least closely, that is a parent who's lost a child. Um and it it sucks. I mean, 
That's all I can imagine. This is terrible. Um, but, but even if it's a 50-year-old who, you know, you're... Unexpected. Your, your spouse, unexpected, you know? Um, well, I was going to say, actually, we, John and I, had a crazy day. And I think it's always me and you for some reason. Yeah, but then we have chill days, too. It's just yeah, we it, do. Like, it's it's, like, it's so kind of hit or miss. We have Both ends of the spectrum. or the <laughs> calmest it, yeah, beach day. It's I, hot or cold. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> And you and I were working, it was crazy, and we had multiple codes come in that day, and you were actually already tied up in one, and we had a 38-year-old come in, and just had already been down quite some time without getting bystander CPR. Um, so 38 years old, had some health issues, but 38, I mean, Still that's, at that good age that's our age, you should like be. Yeah. some of us, and so particularly me. Okay. Um, and so, you know, you're thinking 38, I want to go to like Barbados next year. I don't want to be laying in a bed getting my chest pumped on. Um, but she had already been quite ill and had been refusing to come to the hospital for whatever reason. Um, anyways, had been down quite some time, did not receive bystander CPR. You were tied up. And so I'm like, Oh, okay. Put on my big girl panties and let's do this. Let's just go to this rodeo. And so we start working and doing everything we can. And, you know, they're, we intubated her. They're doing chest compressions. We're giving her round after round of um, medication and any attempt to get anything back. And we got nothing back. And you came up and you were like, when you finished your last code, and you were like, what can I do to help? I said, I need you to go talk to the family. Like, please step away, talk to the family. And you came back and they're like, they don't, they want us to continue. Okay, so we continue. And then together we try to continue and figure out and keep going and um we're not getting anything and we're about 45 minutes into it and so you're like I'm gonna go talk to the family again so you go and you talk to the family and you finally bring dad back because this is his child his 38 year old child so he's in his 50s 60s somewhere around there I'm not sure um I didn't stop and ask and you know when he finally saw everything we were doing to her the tubes in every, because it's not just your mouth or your throat. We put tubes everywhere. Like, it is not a fun process. They, they go everywhere. And every hole, we'll put one. Um, and make and, new ones. And make new ones yeah. sometimes. Um, and so the dad, actually, once he saw everything, was like, she would not want this. I don't want to torture her. Please stop. And so they were much more receptive to it, but I often wonder still about her if she had just gotten bystander CPR. If she, if somebody had just done that, yeah. would the outcome have been different? Well, and I think it's, I think that's a really powerful message to, to being able to bring the family or a family member back to show us what's been done. And too much of the time, I maybe y'all don't, but I, I feel like I kind of get into the groove of well, we did the intubation, we did the lines, uh, we're doing the compression, uh, we've got the tubes in, we've got everything going, we've got the medications administered, we're in our, we're in our groove, so to speak, doing every, you know, checking our time, okay, is it time for a pulse check, is it time for epinephrine, like, mm-hmm. all the medicines, what else do we need, to, do we need to give calcium, do we need to give bicarb, do we need it, what else do we need to give, what other kitchen it's sink? Regimented. It becomes it's regimented, it's because, exactly, because we do it over and over, so I'm like, oh, well, we did quote unquote everything, but to me sometimes that doesn't. I'm like, oh, well, I, I, it kind of loses its 
value. And so you bring a family member back and they're like, oh shit, that's every, wow. It opens their eyes to see what all we've done because I know that when I have arrests that come in that we call and they expire before the family gets there, it is a little challenging to go talk to the to the family and say, well, we did everything. Because their last vision of them is they're kind of struggling, yeah. they're still awake, so they don't think that it's progressed to that point. And then when they get yeah. to the hospital and it's like, what do you mean? I was just talking to them. Yeah. They're kind of in disbelief, so which I get it, I understand. But again, this goes back to, you know, people's comorbids. and. So I remember back when I was an intern, my the first family that my attending made me talk to um, way back when. Um, it's kind of embarrassing. So I went in, I was, I was really nervous. I was like, great, I have to tell these, this family that their loved one died. And I walked into, we had, we had a, a room that, it was kind of like a chapel, like, it, like they had the... Kind know, of like the, a family conference yeah, room, sort was, of? Yeah, it was a church-affiliated hospital, so they had a, a chapel area, like they had a, a pew and, you know, the Bible, and um, the families in there, I walked in, and there were 12 family members in there. Oh, man. And I'm thinking to myself, uh, do, really, do, do I have to do this? And of course, my attendee's like, he's like laughing at me. He's like, this, this, this is totally you. I'm not saying a thing. Like, dude, this is <laughs> going to be rough. This is on you. And by the way, I'm standing close to the door. Yikes. So, so I'm in there nervous, and I just go into this spiel about all that we did, and we gave this medicine, and blah, blah, blah. And like, and, you know, and then, you know, the, 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 the process is you ask the you ask the family or, or friends or loved ones, what, what happened? Tell, tell me what you know happened so that they can give you a little bit of their story, what they know, what they don't know, and then you can fill them in here. Okay, so EMS picked them up. They did X, Y, and Z. They did a great job doing this. We got here. We continued to do what EMS was doing. We added such and such. Now that we had the, the hospital uh, resources, we continued doing it. Uh, and then, you know, unfortunately, uh, we were unsuccessful and your loved one has died. And that's kind of the big part is you, you wait till the very end to tell them that they've died, which drives some people crazy. They're like, did he die or did she die? I mean, they, that's what they want to know. And I was in this, you know, diatribe of what we had done. And I'm going into all the details. And you know, finally, I'm like, yeah, they died. Of course, the family's upset. Thank goodness they were very reasonable. And, you know, nobody like, took a swing at me or anything. But... Uh, left the room and my, uh, I looked at my attending I was like was that okay and he's like um pretty sure you confused the hell out of the family why don't you just say that we followed ACLS protocol and we did all the medications that we needed to do we did chest compressions and it was unsuccessful like the, the point is like I you got a little more so, technical yes yeah they didn't understand the damn thing I was saying and of course I didn't I'd never done it before I didn't know what it was to do, but I understand I'm glad he did that to me because it immediately was like oh you're right like they don't understand the thing. They were just worried that, oh, shit, I'm seeing the doctor. This is probably not a good sign. And that's not always true, by the way. Like, sometimes I go to tell, hey, listen, we got his heart rate back. Um, I don't know if it's going to last, but we do have a heart rate. We're going to get him admitted to the ICU. So it's not always bad if the doctor shows up and tells you a story. But in this particular case, uh, the patient had died. And the whole point was don't just – dump a bunch of information on family and friends. Make sure that you're delivering the information in a concise form 
that they can understand. Because some people don't, don't even understand what intubation is. They're like, what, into, what, that's a word? You know, and they're just like, yeah. hey, look, we did what, what everything we were supposed to do. And they're already on sensory overload from exactly. whatever's just from occurred. I yeah, mean, definitely. Even, I think even as yes. healthcare personnel, like, when you're in that situation, it is totally different. Like, you are not thinking rationally, like, what size ET tube? Did you use? Right. Did you choose a Mackler Miller? Because well, I have where a preference. Exactly is it too? Yeah, yeah. Is it a twenty-three or is it twenty-five? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Are you and fucking kidding me? Did you yeah. go? Did you do the femoral <laughs> or did it's you fair. do? You know, no, like no. I don't. That like when people give you this kind of news, that thought never crosses your mind. I mean, you're not thinking like that. You're thinking on a primitive level. Yeah. <laughs> I have just lost a person I love. That's it. The end. And that's what you're thinking. And so, yeah. I think quick. Like, concise is the best yeah. personal, my personal opinion, yeah. way. Um, because even if you are healthcare-minded, you don't process that. Like, no. that's well, not what you process. even us, when we're, you know, it, you're in the middle of a code. You're in the middle. Perfect example, like the other day, you were in the trauma, and I was in yeah. the code. And there's almost no communication. It's just like, hey, hey, all right, good, Okay. <laughs> You, you good? Yeah. Thumbs up. Awesome. Yeah. See ya. Okay. <laughs> hey, I'm leaving. Okay, bye. <laughs> but the reality is, like, in that moment, my focus is I got to figure out what's wrong with this lady. Why is this lady not breathing? I don't understand this. Uh, you know, and you're going through the process. You're, you're, once again, going through, like, this mental checklist that you've created over and over from repetition. And it's like, okay, th- a, a, B, and C are done. Why is... Why am I not getting my the outcome that I want? Yeah. And when you're done, even with it, you're not done because you're in your head now. You got to go and chart everything that you've done, and it's still not enough. And you're and the first thing I have to ask myself is like, okay, let me start from the very beginning. Where did this lady go but south? She went south at home. Did anybody help her on the way? Yes, they did this, this, and this. Okay, but she progressed, nonetheless. And it's like continuous and you're still in that moment even though you're charting and you're trying to like get everything done and you haven't really come down from that entire scenario yeah yeah Yeah. well and then I I, I compare that initial event to the first time that I had family member witness CPR and uh, a a different attending again I I was an interns different attending invited um family member to come in and, and see what we were doing and then not only did I not feel the need to go in such great detail about everything that we had done I don't know that I even needed to I was able to say listen we're given all the medicines that we have to give we're doing all the procedures that we know to do and are able to do this is not working and it is a, a very painful but visible cue that says this isn't this isn't working and the family member I think was able to say thank you for everything you've done you can stop mm-hmm. and that's at the end of the day I selfishly I can say I just want family and friends to know we really did everything we could do like yeah. I, I know this sucks and this is not what you want to hear and and believe me I want to be the hero that saves the day I mean that's Absolutely. That's we awesome. all do. Yeah, we that's all awesome. Be but that's 95% person. of the time, that's not the case. Uh, and that's at least backed up by one study. I don't know how valid that study was. But 
you know, more times than not, I guess it's, it's, it's not the case that I'm not the hero. Uh, and I'm not sure that I'm even doing the patient any favors just because I resuscitate them. You know, then they end up with you, Mandy, in the ICU for days on end. Yeah. And then they end I, up I think, though, dying. inviting the family to witness. Yes. So I had one right. incident that um, I admitted, I think it was she was elderly and her children were there and she was already on hospice and she ended up having pneumonia. The family brought her in. Uh, they revoked her DNR, DNI. And so, of course, while she's in the ER, she ends up going into respiratory arrest and then she codes. And so her children were at the bedside. This was pre-COVID, obviously. Her children were at the bedside and um, they were like, um, please do everything for her please do everything. So of course we did. And after seeing everything that we had to do to her, we of course got her back. Um, and she was intubated. She ended up being in the ICU. But, um, after that, they were like, please don't, if she codes again, please don't do this again. Please don't do any more to her. Please just, it, they were almost apologetic. And I, I felt bad cause I, and I kept telling them, you know, there's no need to apologize. Like we will do whatever you and her have agreed upon. Um, so whatever you're comfortable with, we will, we will do, but I just want you to realize like she was already on hospice, um, because she kind of had a terminal condition where, which she was not going to come back from all of the extra stuff we will do for her is not going to improve the situation. Like she is still going to be terminal. She's not going to get any better, but I, I just want you to realize that like, this is painful for her, um, and it, it's not going to improve the situation. So they were just like, yeah, we're... we're. And I, I felt bad because, I mean, I obviously uh, other patients to see, but um, the daughter had seen me in the hallway later on, and she stopped me, and she just hugged me, and she was just like, thank you. I, I thank you for... Thank you for explaining it to me. And again, apologetic. I'm not really sure why she... I think she... I, I Honestly, I think she was more apologizing out of her own guilt for not really realizing kind of how barbaric it was. And then she kind of witnessed all the things that we had to do. And there was her mom and she was just like, you know, and she actually said, you know, she said she didn't want this done and we did it. And I just feel bad. And I just was like, it's not your fault. Like it's, I get it. Like this is your mom and you don't want to lose her. Um, but you, that you're honoring her wishes now is what she would want. So we're in total agreement. It's, it's okay. We'll just do what we can until that time comes. Well, and I think I remember taking this course in my, multitude of student loan debt classes um, <laughs> that it was a psychology course on death and dying actually it was um, really an interesting course and basically one of the things that kind of I took away from it one of the biggest you know pieces is we have moved away like the more modern we have come the more uncomfortable with death we have become in that natural process because you know in the 1800s grandma died at home with you yeah and you saw that process and you saw the where we started to become anorexic and we started to kind of decline and then we had the last brief moment of clarity and then you know the eventual going off into peace and it was more of a a well-known process that people were comfortable with and people are no longer comfortable with the actual death process. I mean, maybe here and there. There are, I'm sure, still pockets of people. Um, but overall... I think us as a culture. Yes, as a culture, we, we are not. moved away from that. Mm -hmm. Because even now, especially in America, 
we are busy. We're busy people. We don't have farms. People don't stay at home. It's not multi-generational families all the time. And if they are the elderly, we have nursing homes for skilled nursing care because people are sicker. You can't take care of them at home. And so this, the death process itself, we've just become so uncomfortable with. And so there is an inherent need to fight it and do everything we can do when it's not always in the best interest, when it's going to cause prolonged pain and suffering, and we've just kind of, we've missed that point, you know. I, I wonder if it's really deeper than just the death process. Like, you know, I, I really haven't thought about it until you brought it up right now, but, um, you know, I helped take care of my dad while he was sick, and so... I think that we're so acclimated to being busy that that's our excuse to not take care of people. And we, we put it on somebody else, and then we blame them for shoddy care, or we blame them for because they're a family The eventual them. outcome. Yeah, you're like, well, I pay you to do this. No, bitch, you don't really fucking pay me or dad really has Medicare and Medicaid and the federal government pays me and writes the check at the end of the day, you know, do you pay your taxes is probably the biggest question I have at this point. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I think it's deeper. I mean, I, I didn't even think about it until you brought that up. Yeah, I mean, it's fascinating class, but that was like, uh, I remember think like, oh yeah, I don't think I've ever seen anybody actually die because at this point I'm not in nursing school. I'm not doing any of that. I'm like still doing my uh, fine arts stuff. degree and yeah. psych degree and <laughs> <laughs> my multitude of other degrees. And so I'm just having fun basically in college. And so I was like, oh, that's pretty profound, you know. But back to our, I think our original topic though, um, don't be so uncomfortable that you do nothing. Like, if you are in the middle of the dying process or you see somebody in the middle of this and you see this event happen in front of you, panic, but take a deep breath, call for help, call 911, and just start doing something. And hopefully, I would encourage everyone to have this conversation before it gets to that. Because, yeah, I think you're right. I think we're uncomfortable with death as a culture which is bizarre because we see it all the time on TV and movies, but I guess we've desensitized ourselves because it's not real. Um, yeah, it's not real till it happens to but, you. But I would encourage everyone to have that conversation. Do you want to be resuscitated? You know, Mandy, you mentioned DNR, DNI, and I think we've mentioned before, uh, do not resuscitate, do not intubate. That certainly does not mean that we will not give medications. Uh, it, it also can be revoked at any time, and we will honor any wishes that you or the, the, the individual has um, but these are conversations you need to have with your family and your loved ones because you need to know that if, if you're going to be resuscitated we're going to break ribs mm -hmm. multiple ribs yeah. we're going to stick a tube into your trachea that hurts like a bitch we're going to stick IVs sometimes big ass IVs that are painful uh, and, and potential yeah, and the repercussions, other pulmonary the, contusions, cardiac contusions, all of that, pneumos, all of that, yeah, um, chest tubes, and, and, the whole and you bit. need to have that conversation with your loved ones. Do you want all that to be done? And and the answer may be yes. It certainly could be yes. 
Um, but the answer also might be, you know what? I've lived a great life. I don't need all that. I'm happy. I'm content. I'm okay with, with moving on to the next step. Um, and if that's you and you're listening, convey that to your loved ones. Because I think that's the biggest challenge Put we it have. In writing. Well, that too. Yeah, that yeah. would be the best <laughs> idea. That, that Put takes it in writing. the guilt off of yes. the yes. family too. Yes. Really, I've seen that where they've come in and they said, no, no, they, and you know, they hold up the paper yeah. and they point to it and yeah, right. they push it, the guilt off of themselves by having it in writing. I've yes. seen that and a it, multitude of times. Yeah. I, but, but it's still a minority of times. Like it's it, still, it's a still a minority. It is. Yeah. Like, it is. I, so many people don't have that conversation and yet death is an eventuality. We're, we're all destined we're all for that destined road. For so. that road. Like, yeah. like we're, it's, it's death and taxes, right? It's, it's mm-hmm. inevitable. And yet we don't have that conversation because it's awkward. It's uncomfortable. I can remember the first time uh, my wife and I put a will together. And of course we were like still pretty young at the time when we did it, but it was still, it was awkward, you know? It's like, you know, like even that process was awkward. Um, I mean, and, and yet really important. You know, like it's, you've got to have those awkward conversations and you've got to have those conversations with your children, with your parents, with your grandparents, with your loved ones. I've had those conversations with my family maybe because it's awkward for them. It entertains me more. (laughs) (laughs) And I just kind of take a little bit of pleasure and joy out of telling them, you know, something happens. You just let mom go because I'm not hanging out here with you fools. And I I can't even get up and get my own drink. I'm out. Yeah. Like that's it. So I used to joke, I was going to put a tattoo on my chest that said DNR. That every medical professional would yeah. know, like, yeah. D- yeah. do not resuscitate. This, this guy's done. He's done. Um, and then there was some case that came out where some dude actually yes, had a tattoo. I saw that. And yes. they were like, well, it yes. doesn't hold up. So they had to do resuscitation. Yeah. I was like, because it's not a legal document. Yeah. I saw that. Case. I think we had yes. one guy in trauma that <laughs> yes. had that. I, yeah. I, I don't remember exactly. I want to say he was like motorcycle crash yeah. and he had it tattooed and. You know, yeah. you trauma, you get all the clothes off, and you're like, oh, my gosh, look, do you do, what do we do? Yeah, yeah that like, was the nope, same we thing we continue. ran into yeah. that. Yeah. yeah, But I think so. for as awkward as it is, and I can speak to this from personal experience, if you don't have that conversation and you are the unlucky people who draw the short straw with fate, you're sitting around looking at your family going, well, I don't know. He was 29. Like... I don't know. We didn't have a will. I don't know. I don't. I, and it's we, a hard conversation. Yeah. Because, because then people are left guessing. Yeah. You're left yeah. guessing. And there is inherent guilt with some of those decisions for sure. I, I yeah. Would, I would definitely. also argue, and maybe you're, you're getting at this, that, that like taking personal responsibility and saying, here's what I want. Here's what I don't want. It, it alleviates any guilt from your family. Mm-hmm. Members. So like, you, you're not doing this selfishly. You're doing this out of love for your friends and family to say, listen, guys, don't take any guilt. This is what I want. This is yeah. what I don't want. And and that way you're very clear with them about what what is to be done because otherwise you're right. You're left guessing and you're like, well, what what if I guess wrong? Mm-hmm. Well, that's a, that sucks. Um, and yet if you're, you know, take the time and it does take time. You have to step back and say, hey, look, we have to have a really weird conversation. But... Um, this is something we've got to have. We've got to talk about this um, because everybody dies. It's just. And it's weird because now I have like widow humor. And so I have the most inappropriate thoughts and comments on things sometimes. <laughs> and I know people look at me funny when I'm like, yeah, you should probably get a will. Like, and it's just, you know, it's just one, I'm sarcastic, but two, it's my life 
yeah experience experience, yeah and so i know i had that conversation with you like i know hey you guys are like close to my age and you got kids you should probably tighten that down i i I, I even (laughs) talked to my wife last last night i was like we we need to update our will she's like but but we don't have anything but debt (laughs) well we gotta pass it to someone (laughs) i was like i was like that's realistic let's be optimistic for a minute (laughs) so but i think you're right like you you want to if you're involved in someone who arrests, you don't want to sit around and do nothing. You want to take charge, do chest compressions, tell people, make a phone call to nine one one, or just call out for help. Uh, before that, hopefully you've had this conversation about: Do you even want this to happen, or are you ready to go? I mean, you know, are you, you know, and then that's okay too. Um, and then when you get to us, if you're able to. The things that would really help us, and again, I fully understand if you're emotionally distraught and unable to kind of deliver the information, but what we really need to know is how long have you been doing CPR? Mm-hmm. What other medications, we talked about it, what other medications uh, is this individual on that may or may not impact what could be in, you know, causing problems? Um, those are the, the two biggest things. I mean, I mean what else am I... I mean, no, I mean, I think those are the two biggest things. If you've never seen chest compressions done, which I, you know, Hollywood gets it wrong, but they put it, they, they at least get, I think the hand placement usually correct. Um, I mean, but if you've never seen it and you can take classes through the American Heart Association, you can do the YMCA, but if you don't want to pay money, YouTube it. Like, yeah, Yeah, you can YouTube anything now. CPR dummy videos and those are free. And it takes five minutes to educate yourself. So I think that's our biggest thing. So Yeah, I mean, just get get on your hands and knees. Put your hands in the center of their chest and press and press fast. Anything is better than nothing at this point. Like we said earlier, you can't kill a dead person. And anything is better than nothing. And if you come in and you tell us, well, you know, I, I called uh, 911, but they didn't get here for 25 minutes. And then they started to do chest compressions. Well, that's 25 minutes of no blood to the brain which means no oxygen to the brain which means brain dead mm-hmm. most likely mm-hmm. um and you know when i hear that it's like wow I'm, I'm already way behind the eight ball um this is this is bad for me i don't know if there's a hail mary that i have to give yeah and that's not to say miracles don't happen but it's well beyond my capabilities um and i think too you know we talked about including the family i, I think that is has a lot of value i really do i mean i understand that it is brutal what we're doing and I think that we need to be very clear and I try to when, when I talk to family members and say hey listen first of all would you like to come back to, to see part of the to see the resuscitation and I've had a few family members say no thank you can you just please update me because they actually seem to to understand what y'all are doing I'm I'm not really comfortable yeah with. I've had a couple family members just say you decline yeah they're yeah. like no and then, yeah. then the family members that say yeah please or, or maybe there's one or two that want to come and I was like okay please under, uh, you're more than welcome to come please understand that what you're about to see is is p- potentially going to be perceived as violent and brutal because of the the lines and tubes and chest compressions that we have to place to administer medications to quite frankly, provide circulation. Um, the last thing that I'll say that I have found to be incredibly helpful is the bedside ultrasound. When family members 
see the heart not moving. That, to, and I don't know, that if I, I certainly haven't read any studies. There probably are some studies out there, but my anecdotal experience, that has been incredibly helpful for uh, patients' families to see, oh, wow, that's the heart. It's not doing anything. And it's a, just a real visual indication of th- this person's dead. And that's, like, if you have access to an ultrasound, uh, not only does it help sort of direct resuscitation so you can make decisions as a clinician, but if, if, you've, go, if you've run the gamut and the resuscitation has failed, it helps close the door for, for families and friends to say, wow, yeah, you guys really did everything. Like and they, they can see. Yeah. You know, it, it's Seeing is believing. Yes, mm-hmm. yes. And, and that's something that I've found to be very helpful um, that ultrasound has been phenomenal with um, that I've really, I've really benefited from. But I think this is a good segue into our clinical shots. Agreed. And I think with this one, we probably really only have one that we all kind of had the same consensus on. And the clinical shot for this podcast is just do something. Don't do, do chest compressions. Yeah. Even if it's call 911, just do something. As much as we'd love for everyone to go out and, and, and take a CPR course at the YMCA or the American Heart Association, and that's fantastic, and I would certainly encourage that. Uh, if you haven't, you can do chest compressions. Yes. And certainly I would say uh, if you're not comfortable doing uh, mouth-to-mouth resuscitation, you can still do chest compressions, and that is certainly better than nothing. And I completely agree. That's our clinical shot. Do something, specifically chest compressions. Agreed. That having been said, thank you all for listening. I appreciate it. We'll see you next time. We out. And if you're interested in learning more about training and consulting services offered by Ops Medical Group uh, and how our leadership and teamwork platforms can be of service to your hospital, your medical teams, or your business, you can contact us through our website, opsmedgroup.com, which is O-P-S-M-E-D-G-R-P.com. And please follow us on social media, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn. Lastly, although we are medical professionals, we are not your personal medical professional. (laughs) This podcast is in no way to serve as a diagnostic information or advice, nor is it to replace any personal medical care you might need. If you're worried that you may need medical care, please see your private physician or closest emergency department. If you think you need emergency care, please dial 911. Thanks. Bye.